it seems like everyone is talking about Nicki Minaj. And generally, for not-so-great reasons. I'm not sure if you saw this. Nicki Minaj, who is a rapper, singer, yesterday had tweeted out saying that she had a cousin in Trinidad who hadn't gotten the vaccine because he had a friend who became impotent. On the night of the Met Gala, Nicki Minaj tweeted that she wasn't attending because of the vaccination requirement, saying that if she gets vaccinated, it wouldn't be for the Met, and that she was still doing her own research. And that's when things got truly bizarre. She tweeted a story about her cousin in Trinidad, who also wouldn't get the vaccine. Nikki said this cousin had a friend who'd become impotent after getting vaccinated. She claimed his testicles were swollen as a result. And because of that, this friend's fiance called off their wedding. It's a truly cautionary tale that sounds like it belongs on Black Lady Sketch Show. Sadly, Nicki Minaj was very serious. But that didn't stop the jokes from rolling in. Can we just talk a moment about this poor guy? He must be so mad at his friend. But I told you I was gonna tell my cousin Nikki in America. Boy, you didn't tell me your cousin was Nikki Minaj? Nikki Minaj, you Major story Minaj. this week continues to be the drama involving a friend of a cousin of Nikki Minaj whose boy boulders allegedly blew up bigly as a side effect of getting the COVID vaccine. Does the COVID vaccine cause your cousin's friend's balls to swell. You know? Is that medically accurate? It doesn't cause any ball swelling whatsoever. There it is. Whatsoever. There, so that's, that's the last word. Don't get medical advice from Nicki Minaj. People on Twitter started calling all of this Ballgate. But not everyone thought it was funny. For you to use your platform to put people in the position of dying from a disease they don't have to die from. Oh my God, as a fan, as a hip hop fan, as somebody who was your fan, I'm so sad that you did that. That was Joanne Reed. And Nicki Minaj tweeted some really nasty things about her in response. But Nicki did have some people in her corner too. Of course, the barbs had her back. Nicki Minaj, sir. I'm not that I'm not gonna take your vaccine to And unlikely ally Tucker Carlson also weighed in. It's the last part of Nicki Minaj's tweet that enrages them. The part where she says you should prey on it, make the decision yourself like a free human being, and quote, don't be bullied. Nicki Minaj retweeted that video, by the way. And it wasn't just TV pundits who had something to say. Here's the Minister of Health for Trinidad and Tobago. Claims are being made. One of the reasons we could not respond yesterday in real time to Miss Minaj. And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I'm not familiar with the works of, uh, or not as familiar with the works of, of Nikki Minaj as I probably should be. But I Nikki dropped a voice that. memo using a British accent to clap back. Boris, it's Nikki Minaj. I'm actually British. Hell, even the White House reached out to invite Nikki Minaj to discuss the vaccine. And somehow, she ended up beefing with them too. But as our timelines were flooded with people either praising Nikki for being an independent thinker or chastising her for being irresponsible, a not-so-quiet refrain came up from Twitter. That this, the wacky story about her cousin's friend's balls, the bizarre camaraderie with Tucker Carlson, the ridiculously uninformed tweets, and the media storm it all conjured up was a distraction from the much darker story happening in the background. What is in the lawsuit? Let's just be clear, we would not be here but for the actions of Kenneth Petty and Nicki Minaj. Welcome to Pop Cultured with the Skim. 
I'm your host, Bridget Armstrong. Each week, we'll go deep on one story from the world of pop culture we just can't stop thinking about. This week, the unraveling of Nicki Minaj. We've heard about Nicki Minaj. (laughs) And this is not the usual Nicki debate. Is she still the best female rapper? Is she still relevant? Nicki Minaj is one of the highest selling female rappers of all time. And despite her recent scandals, she's still one of the most popular figures in hip hop. She wields a loyal, sometimes viciously loyal, band of stands whose dedication is only rivaled by the Beehive. And recently, we saw that Nicki Minaj still has the kind of star power that can hijack a news cycle with just a few tweets. But now, she's being accused of using that star power to silence the voice of a woman her husband was arrested for assaulting. And a warning to listeners, we'll be talking about sexual assault on this episode. So if you need to take a moment, please do. Looking at this situation, there's a lot we can learn about who we listen to, who we believe, and who we consider a victim. Especially when a person with more power is the bad actor. I am not a public relations expert, but what I do know about public relations is that you should deflect and distract. Dr. Jamita Barlow is a community health psychologist and assistant professor of writing at the George Washington University. And while she's not a PR expert, she does know a lot about race, gender, and sexuality. It's what she teaches about at GW. The conversation became more about her cousin in Trinidad and the vaccine. But it was a great distraction to the very real issue about how we, the Black community, uphold some of the same practices as white communities by protecting men from harm they do to girls and other women. And the distraction seems to have worked. In the months since the vaccine tweets, Nicki Minaj has managed to steal headlines for a different reason every week. This week, she's defending Jesse Nelson of the girl group Little Mix. Apparently, Nikki and Jesse have a new song together, and a lot of people are calling Jesse out for blackfishing in the video. Blackfishing's that thing white women do when they try to look a little black. Jesse's a British white woman, by the way, and blackfishing is kind of her thing. Anyway, in an IG video that has a lot of people scratching their heads, Nikki cursed out the actual black member of Little Mix for talking junk about her former groupmates blackfishing. If you was in this woman's group and you ain't talk about this for 10 years, and as soon as you see she got a video come out with Nicki Minaj and Puffy, now you sending the stations text messages and all this shit. Print them text messages out. Bust your ass open and shove it up your motherfucking ass. Okay? And stop trying to hurt people and kill people's lives and career. This is the way people feed their families. Stop. The point is... When you Google Nicki Minaj, you probably have to scroll through stories about this, her son's first birthday party, and her recent appearance on the Real Housewives reunion before you see anything about the woman she's being accused of threatening and intimidating. To understand why Nicki Minaj may have created this smoke and mirror show, we have to look at what she and her husband, Kenneth Petty, are being accused of. Nicki Minaj and Kenneth Petty were married in 2019. Nicki Minaj has said they met when Nicki was a teenager in Queens. Kenneth Petty is five years older than Nicki. In 1994, when Petty was 16, he pled guilty to the attempted rape 
of another 16-year-old from his neighborhood named Jennifer Huff. Last month, Huff talked about what happened for the first time on camera on the talk show, The Real. She said she was on her way to school. She was looking for the bus, and she had a brief conversation with Petty, who she knew from the neighborhood. At some point, Petty came up behind her, grabbed her, and pressed an object against her back that she assumed was a gun. It was a knife. She says he forced her to walk to his house with the object pressed in her back, and when she got there, he pushed her inside and forced her up the stairs. And just the warning, this is really difficult to listen to, but it's compelling hearing her in her own words. We walk up the steps and I'm continuously pleading with him. I'm, I'm asking him, like, what do you want? Like, if you just want me to chill here with you, I will. Um, and then he said he, I knew what he wanted. He pushed me down on the bed. We wrestled for my clothes because all I could, all I could do was hold my, hold my pants like this as tight as I can. It was like a tug of war after a while. I just got tired. And I just felt maybe if, if you hurry up, you know, I could just hurry up and leave. After he got off top of me, he stood in the mirror and he beat his chest. He said, I'm the man, I'm the, I'm the man. And so I'm asking him, please let me go. I won't tell nobody. After a struggle with Petty, Huff says she was able to catch him off guard and push him down. That's when she ran down the stairs and out of the house. Before I knew it, I was in front of my school and security guard was asking me, where have you been, Jennifer? You're late. And I told them. And they called the police, and the police came, and they put me in a, in a van. And they asked me if I can show him, show them the location of where this happened. I did. And I watched them bring him out in handcuffs. And then they took me to the hospital. When Nicki Minaj and Kenneth Petty got together in 2018, it didn't take long for people to find out about her new boo's past. Huff, whose identity was still a secret at the time, said she was immediately worried about being outed. I was so afraid of being found out. I was so afraid of being known as the person he violated. And I didn't want that. You know, it's Nicki Minaj. You know, I didn't, I didn't want that to reflect on my children. Live from New York City, it's the Wendy Williams Show. Oh, yes. um, um, Nicki Minaj might be getting married. He served time in prison for attempted rape. Well, he was 15. I don't know the details. And of course, Nicki Minaj responded to Wendy Williams on her Apple Music show, Queen Radio. Every time you mention him, you feel the need to bring these things up, as well as something that he was wrongfully accused of doing when he was 15 years old. Well, because he didn't have $7,000 to get himself bailed out. Because when you're in the hood at 15, you don't have that kind of money, and neither does your family. And when the alleged accuser wrote a, a, a letter to the judge asking to take it, take the, recant these statements, she was told that she would go to jail for 90 days, allegedly, if she recants the statement. 
but white is right. The problem with this statement and other statements Nicki Minaj has made on social media regarding the case, they don't seem to be all the way true. It sounds like Nicki Minaj is saying white is right, implying that Jennifer Huff is white. She isn't. Minaj has also implied that there was a one-year age difference between Huff and Petty when he was charged. They were the same age. She's also implied that Huff and Petty were in a relationship at the time of the incident, something Huff denies and court records don't support. Here Huff is addressing those allegations with the real. Nikki addressed fans who brought up Kenneth's attempted rape conviction by replying to them on social media, saying he was 15, she was 16, in a relationship. What are your thoughts about that? It was like reliving it again, because it was a lie. Um, it wasn't true. We, we both were 16. We were never in a relationship. You don't know me to know that that statement you put out to the world to be true. You have 150-something million followers on They all believed it. And as for her supposed letter to recant, Huff told the host of The Real that she was being pressured by her own family members to drop the charges. I was forced to go up to the courthouse on his court date. I wasn't supposed to be there. They had me hiding on the steps. They, meaning my family, had me on the stairwell um, waiting for his court to come up and... It just so happened that the district attorney took the steps that day. And she seen me and she asked me, what was, Jennifer, what are you doing here? And because my back was to my family, I was able to tell her that they were trying to force me to drop the charges. So when it came time for court, I believe the judge might have asked a question and I I stood up in court and I just blurted out, I want to drop the charges. I never said it didn't happen. I just said, I want to drop the charges. And the judge said, take it to the DA. And they told me to leave. You know, like the district attorney told me I had no, nothing to worry about. Kenneth Petty was charged with first-degree rape. He later pled guilty to attempted rape and served four and a half years in prison for the crime. In 2020, Petty was arrested for failing to register as a sex offender in the state of California when he and Nicki Minaj moved there after they got married. And according to Huff, that's when the direct harassment really ramped up. It started with phone calls to family members Huff says she hadn't seen in years. The people claiming to represent Nicki Minaj were offering money in exchange for information about the alleged letter Huff wrote. Huff says someone even approached her daughter in the club asking about Kenneth Petty. She also told the host of The Real that she got a strange phone call from Nicki Minaj herself. In March of 2020, she called me and she said that she got word that I was willing to help them out in a situation. She offered to fly me and my family to LA. I turned it down and I told her, woman to woman, this really happened. Let's pause for a moment. Huff says Minaj offered to fly her out to Los Angeles in exchange for recanting her statement about a man who pled guilty to attempted rape. And from there, Huff says things only got worse. 
The last um, incident was when um, one of their associates put $20,000 on my lap and I still kept saying no. The last message I received was that I should have taken the money because they're going to use that money to put on my head. She said that that incident scared her so much, she changed her number and moved away from her kids because she didn't want to put them in danger. In August, Huff filed a lawsuit against Minaj and Petty, accusing them of harassment, witness intimidation, and intentionally inflicting emotional distress on her. And she's suing Petty for damages for sexually assaulting her back in 1994. These are very serious allegations. And you can imagine the attention this would get if, let's say, Jennifer Huff were white. But a month after the lawsuit was filed... We're still more interested in uncovering the mystery of Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's balls. Uh, at least I am. I don't know. Minaj hasn't been charged with the crime. And we can't say for certain if she's intentionally derailing and deflecting from these allegations and using her power to protect an abuser. But the fact that this could still be possible, even after the Me Too movement, tells us a lot about whose stories we listen to and whose trauma we care about. Here's Me Too creator Tarana Burke talking to the BBC. Did you ever think the movement would have taken off the same way without social media and a Hollywood star? And did you ever feel your work was being hijacked? We definitely live in a country where we are socialized to respond to the vulnerability of white. If anybody hijacked the movement, the origins of Me Too, it's the media. Because the media is going to keep telling the same story. The media is going to keep putting the camera on the white women. They don't know what to do with me. When actress Alyssa Milano tweeted the Me Too hashtag, it put the movement on a global stage. All of a sudden, millions of people were using it to recount their stories. And Me Too inspired other movements, including Time's Up. That movement focused specifically on sexual harassment in Hollywood, and it was dominated by narratives from white women. And that meant a lot of people felt left out of the conversation, especially women of color. But even within the entertainment industry, the music business and hip-hop in particular never really seemed to have that Me Too moment the way that Hollywood did. And lots of people have pointed that out. Cardi B called out the Me Too movement for overlooking women in hip-hop and other women with less power. Here she is talking to radio personality Angie Martinez. When I see the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. there's girls from the hood. I know that they went through the same type of treatment. Like, it will make you feel like you got to do a certain type of thing for the most bull. Happens every day. It happens really every day. Abuse and assault aren't exclusive to hip-hop. A lot of people still want to see a reckoning for the entire music industry. But when we're talking about people associated with the genre who have been accused of assault, harassment, or rape, the list can seem long. A jury in the federal trial of R. Kelly has found the singer guilty of racketeering based on sexual exploitation of children, kidnapping, and forced labor. They also found him guilty of violating all eight counts of the Mann Act, a sex trafficking statute. R. Kelly is one of the most egregious examples. And even though he's being held accountable now, look how much it took. Some 50 witnesses. R. Kelly had a very public relationship with Aaliyah when she was a teenager. He married her when she was 15 and he was 27. Here's a clip from the Surviving R. Kelly docuseries. We had the history of musicians who married young girl fans and 
I think while it was disturbing to people, it's very easy to rationalize things when you're in the industry and you see this flourishing career, not only of Kelly, but of Leah. The marriage was eventually annulled, but he didn't face any legal consequences. In fact, R. Kelly harassed, assaulted, manipulated, and coerced dozens of underage girls and young women for decades. He was sued by a woman who said he had sex with her when she was underage and forced her to get an abortion. They settled out of court. He was also arrested for producing child pornography, but was eventually acquitted. Earlier this year, T.I. and his wife, Tiny, were accused of some form of sexual assault by more than a dozen women who pressed charges. Kodak Black, Takashi 69 Mystical, and even Tupac have all been found guilty or pled guilty to some form of sexual assault. The list of rappers and other artists named in civil suits for sexual assault is even longer. It includes The Game, Trey Songz, Soulja Boy, Take Off, Africa Bambada, French Montana, and a lot of other people. Nas, Fabulous, Chris Brown, Joe Button, and Dr. Dre have all been accused of abuse against women. And in some instances, the abuse is well-documented. In this list, it doesn't even cover half of the accusations against powerful men in hip-hop or the music business in general. In 2020, HBO released a documentary called On the Record that detailed sexual assault allegations against hip-hop mogul Russell Simmons. To date, at least 10 women have accused Russell Simmons of rape or some form of sexual assault or harassment. The Los Angeles Times revealed accusations of Simmons teaming up with Hollywood director Brett Ratner to allegedly assault women. He took a piece of me with him when he did this, and then, then he carried it with him. And he carried it with him for three fucking decades. Russell Simmons stepped down as the head of Def Jam following the accusations. And several of the men I mentioned did face legal and financial repercussions. And just to reiterate, in many of these situations, these are just allegations. Some of these men have never been charged with a crime. But it seems like very few of them were ever held accountable or even questioned by their peers in hip-hop. What's more, I don't even think the casual hip-hop fan knows about half of these accusations. The other day, I was at my physical therapy appointment. And as I lay on the table stretching my knee, to my surprise, a new song from Nelly, well, it was new to me, started playing in the background. The therapist and other patients in the room started gleefully talking about how great Nelly was on Dancing with the Stars last year and how much they liked his new country music collapse. They talked about the new Burger King ad and shared memories of dancing to his songs at weddings. And I could tell that not one person in the conversation was aware that Nelly had been accused of rape by three women in the last five years. When it comes to sexual assault and hip-hop, it's not just that people don't care. They don't even seem to know what their favorite rappers have been accused of. And it makes it seem to a lot of people that hip-hop hasn't had the same sort of reckoning we've seen in Hollywood when it comes to Me Too. And this is why I called up Dr. Jamita Barlow. That's the GW professor we heard from earlier. She teaches all about this stuff. As someone who grew up on hip-hop, who loves hip-hop, it's, it's a harder conversation because hip-hop grew out of the pain and the anguish, but also the fun and the creativity, but also the arts not being in school, but also telling our stories and acknowledging that those stories are real and we should share them. 
But what happens when only certain people's stories are told, right? And I remember the the filmmaker and just extraordinaire Ava DuVernay said something about, we have a very abusive relationship as Black women with hip hop. There are songs that we love. And there are, say, parts of R&B. I think across the music industry, it's just not hip hop. There are problematic songs, problematic people that speaks to the societal issue. And so why hasn't it happened in hip hop? To answer that, you have to look at who is being abused. And you have to go back and look at history. One in three Black women have been sexually assaulted. I honestly don't know one woman, including myself, who has not experienced some level of sexual assault. It's acceptable for Black women's bodies to be touched, to be harmed in spaces. If you understand the history of Black women and sexual assault, we have to start with the fact that we were viewed as chattel slavery in this country, that literally laws were created to make it legal for the ongoing rape and torture of Black women. That is embedded into our social policies, into our practices. Sexual assault was accepted socially. Sexual violence was legalized. Sexual violence was accepted socially. So it is not surprising many generations today that Black women are least likely to report any type of sexual violence, along with our Indigenous sisters. And so what's important to note is that policies still today privilege some in how they're implemented, how they're evaluated, and how they're enforced. And that's really set the stage for how Black women are viewed, historically the trope of Black women. We could go all the way down these different avenues, but the reality is that the social policies, the social foundations, the legal policies and foundations made it legal for the rape and sexual torture of Black women. You talked a little bit about some of the factors, but what are some of the other factors, some of those policies, some of those social factors that still contribute to Black women being more likely to be assaulted, but less likely to report? There's a term called intersectionality coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, but so many other people have spoken to this double-edged sword that Black women have, right? And I think what's happened over time is that Black women, because they live differently than white women, and they were quiet and had to be quiet because they wanted to take care of their communities. You don't talk negatively about this Black man because of what has happened to the Black man. And so the real question becomes, when do we talk about the Black woman? It doesn't have to be either or, right? For sure. So the R. Kelly verdict, I think, is one of the most stark examples of someone within hip-hop or R&B who's had a long history of abuse finally being held accountable. But the guilty verdict does sort of represent a change in what we've seen where a lot of times people are not even charged or worse, we never even hear people's stories. So I'm wondering what effect, if any, do you think the R. Kelly verdict will have on the way that we see abusers within the entertainment industry? I mean, it's a hope. And I am one of the most hopeful people. I never want to lose hope. But these girls were dismissed. They weren't believed for so many years. How do we change that? How do we change all the people who made it okay? And even some of the girls themselves rationalized this was okay. So what is happening on multiple levels 
that we're making it okay that, you know what, we live in this world where Black men are treated this way, Black women are treated this way, but that's okay. It's okay if you're being harmed, if you're experiencing sexual violence, as long as we uphold the one that made it. In this case, what we see is a case being brought forward. We hope more are, but look what it took. There's still a part of the Me Too movement that feels like it's overlooked or left out the specific stories from Black women and some of the specific factors that affect Black women uniquely. Why do you think that is? And is there a way, or should there, should, should Me Too have been implemented in a way that um, could have been more inclusive of Black women? The very foundation of this country has been stolen land, stolen bodies, and the continued rape and pillaging of the land, of the bodies, for economic gain. And I can't emphasize that enough. And so to get to your point about Black women and the Me Too movement, we're asking for disruption of the social foundations of this country. That's big. And so do I see it changing? Oh, eventually, because we know that everything changes, right? But the real answer is that until we center marginalized people in every scenario, what we're going to see is the centering of whiteness. And so I tell people, if it's sexual violence that we're talking about and we want to create change, center Black women, center Indigenous women. Because if you address their issues, you address everybody else's issues. And hopefully that means that institutions like media fall in line. Institutions like criminal justice fall in line. Institutions such as the medical system fall in line and ask the questions that need to be asked. And not further criminalize Black women for the way in which the world has viewed us for centuries. You could walk away from this conversation and say, I'm no longer supporting Nicki Minaj. I'm going to delete her music, mute her on Twitter, and feel like you've really taken a stand. But this issue is way bigger than her, who, let's remember, as a Black woman in the music industry, has also had to fight her way through racism and sexism. When I am assertive, I'm a bitch. When a man is assertive, he's a boss. Bossed up. He bossed up. When you're a girl, you have to be like everything. You have to be, you have to be dope at what you do, but you have to be super sweet and you have to be sexy and you have to be this and you have to be that and you have to be nice and you have to, it's like, I can't be all those things at once. This is about power and who has the power to tell their stories and have them listened to and believed. And that's Dr. Barlow's point. This is an indictment of our entire society it's not only the responsibility of Black women to advocate for themselves. The ways in which we ignore and devalue Black and Indigenous women are rooted in American culture, and it's up to all of us to fix it.
So that was heavy. And we don't want to just leave you there. So we're going to switch gears before we go. And that's something we'll do a lot on this show. Bring you a little something extra at the end. And this one's just in time for fall. Fall is one of my favorite seasons. You know, it's time to break out the fall boots. I love a good chai. But there's also football and piles of wet leaves and cold days. So, you know, more reasons to cancel your plans, stay the heck inside, and just get cozy on the couch. Which isn't always a bad thing, because there's so much out there to watch, listen to, and read. Which is why from time to time on this show, we'll be rounding up can't-miss movies, books, TV, and music with picks from people who know what they're talking about. This week, we're turning to two bookstagrammers who gave us some solid book recommendations. Hi, my name is Carmen. I am a book influencer on Instagram. My handle is Tomes and Textiles, and I mostly feature YA fiction, feminist books, and a little bit of vintage fashion. Hi, I'm Donna Johnson of This Brown Girl Reads. I'm the founder and curator of our platform, which is a literary platform that celebrates authors of the African diaspora and African authors. And because we're wrapping up Hispanic Heritage Month, we wanted something specific. Their favorite books from Latina authors. And they delivered with some picks that have at least a dash of magic because, you know, it's Halloween too. First up is Carmen with her pick, Gods of Jade and Shadow by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. It is a jazz age, so think 1920s, road trip. A girl named Cassiopeia who has lived in a small town for her entire life and just wants to get out, meets the god of death who she has to help save from being murdered by his brother. So they end up on a road trip together and it's a little bit of a love story. There's a lot of Mexican folklore included in it. It's just pure magic. It's a book that I read it a number of years ago and it viscerally just makes me happy every time I think about it all these years later. I think for me, the thing that resonated the most is that you can live an ordinary life and think that you are trapped in it and yet still end up in something magical and something that goes beyond your wildest expectations. It's just a story that evokes this kind of fanciful part of life and helps you escape in a certain way and makes you feel hopeful for the future. Donna's pick is the 2009 novel, Daughters of the Stone by Dama Llanos Figueroa. It starts off in 19th century Puerto Rico and follows the descendants of Fela, an enslaved woman. Colonialism, epic family ties, magical realism, whew, it's got a lot. The story takes us through five generations of women. So it's a multi-generational story that takes us from time and place over the course of different lands and period. But there's the one thing that ties them together, which is their legacy. For many people, we don't think of Puerto Rico as an island that has such an extensive connection to Africa. And Dalma brought that in. She brought mystical and magical realism and bring it to the Puerto Rican islands, but with the African flair. And so it's a way to celebrate the merging of cultures and then to bring the story into modern day as well with the multi-generations of the storytelling. I'm of Afro-Cuban descent, and it's not something that 
I'm attached to in the sense that the parent that is Afro-Cuban is not the parent that I was raised with. So I gravitate to know so much more about Afro-Latino culture. And so when reading the story, it was just great to see the connection and knowing so much more of the legacy of Africa going into the Latin Caribbean islands and then seeing the stories untold. And Donna's got a bonus nugget for us. Dama Llanos Figueroa's second book is hitting stores this spring. It's called Woman of Endurance. And yes, it's another historical novel. Dama is a woman of age. So she just celebrated her 72nd birthday and she's full of enthusiasm. So it's just like, it gives everyone the, I guess that little excitement that you could do this at any age, that you don't have to be that young person that has all these novels under your belt. You know, and she continues with the same line of thought in the sense that she is still empathizing the connection of her African roots with her Puerto Rican roots. If you couldn't open your notes app fast enough to get those down, don't worry, we've got you. Check out the episode description for links. We're also linking out to a list on theskim.com with even more pics, plus links to Carmen and Donna's Instagram pages. They're both must-follows. And that's all for us this week. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. But it's really a team effort. The show's producer is Alicia Key. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Our director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Thanks to Kira Long and Luke Vargas for additional production support. Big thanks to our guest, Dr. Jamita Barlow. And thanks to Carmen of Tomes and Textiles and Donna of This Brown Girl Reads for your book recommendation. I also want to say a huge thank you to the entire audio team and all of the other folks at The Skim for all of their hard work on this launch. Okay, one episode down. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. And we'll see you right back here next week.